Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. We've been going through a series on Romans, and today what I'm going to do is we're going to read through this section of text. If you want to turn in your Bibles or your scripture journals, we're going to be in Romans 3, starting in verse 9. I'm going to read this long section of text, and I'm going to pause and make comments and notes, and then I'm going to have two takeaway points. And uh, one thing that I'm really, really excited about with this sermon is that we get to kind of be happy for a little bit. We've, Romans has been really down the first few sermons because Paul is laying some foundational work. But now we get to be positive. And I am also nervous about this sermon because there is a part of me that thinks uh, there are very few sections of Scripture in the whole Bible that are as impactful as this one. So if you don't walk away thinking, man, I feel impacted, that means it was my fault, not the Bible's fault. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Oh, yeah, sorry. Let me go to that go through the text, are all under the power of sin. One of the things about that line that's important, the idea of power of sin is not, he's not just saying, hey, we all sin every once in a while. It is that it is uh, our master. And so one of the reasons why I want to point this out, something someone said I really liked was, if all of us just sin a lot, then we need a teacher to teach us how to not sin. But if all of us are under the power of sin, then we need a liberator and a redeemer who can free us from that. Those are two different things, and they're important. Jesus is a great teacher, but he did not come to be the teacher. He came to be the liberator, to set us free. So, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. One thing I want to say about this section. So uh, some of your Bibles, if you're using your own Bible, they have little notes beside each one of these. What Paul has just done is he's taken a whole bunch of passages from Psalms and one or two from some prophets, and he's listed these out. He's just gone through a bunch of different Psalms and just said, here's an example of all the ways in which we fall short. And one thing, though, that I want to point out that is really cool is that each one of these Psalms, it does have a charge against someone. It says something like, Uh, Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Or it says something like, there is no one who does good. But on either side of it, usually there is, in all of these, there is something where it says that God's going to act to rescue and make good on his covenant promise to his people. And so even here, while Paul is just laying it on, like really going to town, he's hinting at the fact that God's got a solution and got a plan for it. Verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The one thing Paul's kind of setting up here, even though there's no courtrooms back then like the courtrooms we have, in the Roman society there were courtrooms. And Paul is kind of doing some stuff where he has this image of, of a court 
type of thing. He's using phrases like, we are all guilty. Uh, verse, in verse 9 it says, uh, we have already made the charge, like a charge in a court case. And this part here where he says, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Part of what you're supposed to picture is you've got Jews and Gentiles here, and neither of them have a defense. Neither of them can say anything. Both of them are standing there like, uh, you know, the judge... Uh, so do you, have any, do you have any words to say? And they're kind of like, no. I mean, the defense is kind of stacked against me. I have no, no words to say. Then we have verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so here we get to this part. I'm going to go back a few slides because I put it in the wrong spot. And it's going to... But here I want to catch us up on where we are as of right now using an alliteration. We have a principle, a problem, and a place. The principle that Paul has been saying, and we can see this most clearly in chapter 2, 6 through 11, if you like to make these notes, is that God is going to judge humans by what they do. Now, if you're like, wait a second, Paul says all the time that we are going to be justified by our faith. That is true. But Paul also says in Romans 2, God will judge humans by what they do with their lives. So that's the principle. The problem, as he's just laid out and spent the last few sermons laying out, is all humans find themselves, Jews and Gentiles, under this power of sin. People, no matter how hard we work, can never do anything adequate to live a good enough life for God to say, I judge that you are righteous. Okay? So that's our principle. That's our problem. And this is our place. This is our where we stand as of right now. Because of this universal power of sin, none of us can be put right by what we do, by the works of following the law. So this is, this is where Paul has left us hanging here. And then he comes in in verse 21, and this is what you should imagine is it's like the scene in the movie where all hope seems to be lost, the tension is building, and suddenly the hero comes swinging in. And you're like, oh, thank you. you feel so much relief where it's like, oh, finally, the resolution. I... I I don't know what movie is your favorite movie, but whether it's a Hallmark movie is your favorite movie, and you think, oh wait, are they not? Are the couple? Are they not going to make it? No, 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 don't, don't. And then all of a sudden, the guy comes swinging in and is like, no, I, I love you, and and you feel all the relief. You, you know what I'm talking about? Or you like those action movies where you think the person's going to die, and then suddenly the hero comes in and is like, not today. You know, today we win. Okay, this is Paul is about to come swinging in and say these two very, very big words in Romans uh, 21. But now, what shall we conclude? All right, uh, verse, wait, where am I? Verse oh yeah, I got to go all the way back to, whoa, 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 whoa. Is that it right there? Thank you. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So this word, I, I kind of made a hint of this early in this series, but anytime you see the word righteousness, there should be a lot of things that come to your head. A lot of triggers of, okay, this is an important word. And what's cool is Paul, in this passage from 21 through and 25 and 26, every time you see the word righteousness or justice or righteous or justify, they're all the same word in Greek. But in English, we have to use different words to try and explain it. And another thing I'm going to say that's really cool is early in this, like in verse 21, when it talks about the righteousness of God, and then in verse 25 and 26, it talks about the righteousness of God, he's got two different things in mind. It's Paul being really creative 
to use the exact same word, but to point it, make two different points. So clue that away, all right? That's going to be important. This first reference of righteousness in 21 is he is talking about his righteousness as God, that he is right and he is just. When he talks about righteousness in 25 and 26, he's going to be talking about his desire to make you righteous. His righteousness and his sticking to his covenant promise that he wants you to be in right standing, okay? So you just got to remember all that's going on with this important word. In 22, he says, righteousness comes through faith. And this is so important because I, I can't say this enough. I, I have an analogy I think you're really going to like. But it says, it is righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Often we emphasize the word faith. And there's nothing wrong with emphasizing the word faith. But here, I want us to emphasize the phrase, in Jesus Christ. So let me give you an example. If I went to New York and I climbed on top of the, New, the Empire State Building, and I strapped some heavy wings on my arms and on my back, and tied them real good and bought really good material, and I had tons of confidence and faith and trust that I could fly to England across the Atlantic Ocean with these wings, just tons of confidence, what's going to happen to me? I am going to hit the concrete at such force that you, I will be tiny particles, okay? Now, I want you to imagine another situation. Let's say I go to, London, or, uh, go to New York, and uh, what's the airport in New York? LaGuardia? Is that the... Okay, okay. let's say I go there, and I, uh, I get on a Boeing 747, but I am terrified. I just am like, I don't have very much hope or confidence in the pilot. I'm really not sure. I just feel utter quaking. Oh, I'm not sure. And I get on that plane. I'm probably going to make it across the Atlantic Ocean, right? So the factor here that's so important to Paul is it is not about the amount of your faith. It is about the object of your faith. With the analogy with the guy with the wings on the Empire State Building, he had tons of faith that he'd make it. He had tons of trust and confidence that those wings would get him across the ocean, but it, they didn't. And the other person was very nervous, very anxious about getting on the plane. But it got him there because their faith and their trust, one was in the wrong thing and one was in the right thing, okay? This is very important to Paul because the second we start to become people who say, well, you just got to have enough faith, then we've immediately turned faith into another work in and of itself. Another thing that you need to do right enough or have enough of or do well enough in order for God to do the rest of it. It is not about the competence of your faith. It is about what you put your faith in. And it's about putting it in Jesus Christ and his blood and his death on the cross. Okay, that was really important to me. And uh, I think that part of why it's so important to me is because I know too many people that wonder about their life because they wonder if they've done faith good enough. Does that make sense? That they've trusted hard enough and well enough. Well, did my prayers not get answered because my faith was too small? Paul and a lot of the New Testament makes it very clear. It is not about how strong and adequate your faith is. It is about what your faith is in. Is it in Jesus Christ? All right? So let's keep reading verse 23. I think I'm still on the right slide here. Okay. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified, that same word righteous that Paul is using, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This phrase, sacrifice of atonement, 
Some of your Bibles may have little notes in the bottom. Does anybody have a little note in the bottom? Does anybody say the phrase mercy seat there? The translation, the mercy seat? So, I don't, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He would go in there and there would be animals that would be slaughtered, there would be a, a scapegoat that would be sent away that had the people's sins on them. But he would take the blood of the animal sacrifices into the Holy of Holies and on the top of the altar are two winged cherubim, right, facing each other. And we are told that that in the center is where God would meet his people on the mercy seat is where it's called. And the priest would go in there and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And this is very common in the New Testament with Paul and especially the Hebrew author, that they clearly see in their minds a connection between what Christ has done on the cross of being the sacrifice that atones for the sins of the people. They see that connection to what those priests used to do by going into the place. And now that, that place, that uh, that place of atonement is the place where Jesus is saying, you don't have to go into this altar and this place to, to be around my presence, to be saved, to be redeemed, to be made right. You just do it through faith in me. And that's what he, he's referencing when he references that sacrifice of atonement or the God presented Christ as a mercy seat through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, so we're still talking about God's righteousness, but now, remember, it's a different, it looks different. The first time we talked about God's righteousness, it was the fact that he is just and he is right. Now, Paul is saying that he did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his covenant faithfulness, his desire for you to be made right. He did this to de demonstrate his desire for you to be in the right because in his forbearance, he had left he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his desire to make you right at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Oh, I may have skipped early. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. This whole idea of the law that requires faith is something he's going to talk more and more about later in Romans, so we're not going to talk about it today. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify, make right, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. All of last chapter is what I was talking about of this idea of you think you're made right because you're a Jew, because you are circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, it's whether you have been circumcised by your heart and you express this faith in Jesus Christ. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Okay, so let me, let me unpack the two biggest and most important things in, in my opinion. This one is the big one, okay? Paul has presented a puzzle that I think all of us probably have... If you've spent much time studying the Bible, you've probably contemplated this puzzle before. He presents us with this puzzle. I'm going to word it in two different ways to make it extra likely that you pick up what I'm saying. Paul's puzzle is, how can God be righteous? How can he be just and a just judge and do what a just judge ought to do and at the same hand be righteous and faithful to the covenant that he promised to rescue his people? Okay? 
to, to rescue his people from bondage, all right? Because you think about it, if a really good, just judge does exactly what they ought to do, we all deserve to die, right? Because we are guilty, right? I need some shaking heads. Okay, thank you. But he also said, I have made a covenant to Abraham and to his descendants that I will bless the world. And so if I condemn you to die, I've, I've lost my credibility as someone who said, I've got this covenant with you, right? So he's, God's in this tough spot, okay? And Paul is wrestling with this puzzle. Here is my second way of wording it. Did I skip ahead? Maybe I just have one slide today. I, uh, I'm sorry. The second way that we can word this puzzle is, how can God remain righteous and maintain a perfect record of the unjust and always doing what they deserve based on their life and make sinners who don't deserve it, how can he make them right? Okay? You see this puzzle, this, this difficult spot that Paul is describing? How can there be a righteousness of God, God being righteous and a righteousness that God gives us at the same time. And here is Paul's answer. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place where the judge takes the judgment on himself. Write that down. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. All right? If God chose to just say, you know what? I'm not going to be just anymore. I'm just going to forgive them of their sins. I'm not worried about it anymore. He is no longer a righteous God. God does not set aside his justice in order to make us right, but instead he turns it on himself. For example, if a parent said, you know what, I want you to start living right and you keep on making mistakes, so I'm just going to not punish you anymore. I'm just going to not, not hold you accountable anymore. That child is going to grow up to have a worse life because there's no accountability, okay? Now, on the other hand, though, the cross does not compromise, it doesn't represent this compromise between his justice and his love that we always make it seem like. We always make it seem like God of the Old Testament is the God of justice and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. That couldn't be further from the truth. It doesn't satisfy each halfway. Well, the cross is kind of a little bit of his justice and half of his love meeting together. No. At the cross, each of them is satisfied fully. On the cross, the justice and the love of God are both utterly fulfilled. Because what he has done is he has taken the judgment fully on himself and he has showed his love fully through his death on the cross. Um, one of the, here, here's a quote and then I've got a little story that I think will make this point. At the very same moment, the cross shows us that God is both the judge who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them and he is the one who justifies us, who, has, who, who makes us right who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 3:26, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, so as to be just, to stay right and uh, honest judge, and the one who makes us right, the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I heard a story one time about this man who owned a gas station who was a Christian man, very devout Christian. I heard this about his funeral, at his funeral. Um, whenever there was this woman who was a widow who would come once a week, and she would, oh, maybe not once a week, but maybe like once every two weeks, and she would come and she would pay him $2 for gas. And this was back when you would, you know, pump the gas yourself. And what he would do is he would take her $2 
and he would put $12 of gas in her car to fill her up. And the gas was $2 when her husband had passed away. And so she remembered that her husband would always be the one to go and pay the gas, and he would go pay $2. And so she, but this was one of those things where this was not a dumb woman. And so she probably knew that th what this man was doing. She probably knew that her $2 was not filling up her entire tank of gas. But what he would do is he would take her $2, and he would put $12 of gas in the car. Now, what you would think is, if he wants to, he could just say, oh, you know what, I'm just going to take the $12 out of the cash register, right? Because he's the store owner. But no, what he would do is he would take his own personal money and he would pay the cash register $12. And then what he would do is take her $2 and put it in an envelope. And anytime anyone in town needed anything that they came and he heard about it, he would take whatever was in the envelope and he would pay them with it, okay? So the reason I use this story is to say, Gas costs $12. As my government teacher used to say in high school, there's no such thing as a free sandwich. Everything has a cost. There is something that comes with it. And this gasoline he's putting in the car costs $12. He doesn't get to just make up, well, just because she gave me $2 and I put $12 in, oh, it's all, it's all good and taken care of. No, the cash register is expecting $12. But what he does is instead of holding her to be the one that has to pay the amount, he chooses from his own as the store owner to say, I'm going to take from myself and be the one that makes this right, makes this justified. So in, at one stroke, he does not lose his credibility as a trustworthy businessman running a stable business because he makes sure the money gets paid. And at the same time, he doesn't lose his credibility as someone who is giving and makes others right because he's still willing to say, I'm going to be the one that makes this cash register right. You pick up what I'm saying? This is what Jesus did on the cross. He did not say, well, you know what? God's not really just anymore. He's just going to forgive all of y'all. You know what? Ah, just no worries. Just you're good. But what he does is he says, I am going to make sure this is right. I'm going to make sure I stay just I stay the righteous God, and I'm going to make sure I'm the one that makes you righteous. And if you decide to put your faith in me, you will be made right, and you will be justified. It's not about how good your faith in Jesus is, but it's whether or not you have it in him. And so this brings me to the other point, which is secondary. And this is the phrase that Paul says, where then is boasting? And the point he's making is, how can any of you, Jew or Gentile, Church of Christ or Baptist, Christian or how can any of you boast about anything you've ever done? Because it's not anything you did that made you righteous. It is the fact that Jesus was the one who was willing to make you righteous. Here's a great quote. It's one of my favorite little uh, ways of describing this. Uh, after a game where uh, Michael Jordan and this guy named Stacy King played together, they interviewed him and asked him about it because Michael Jordan that night had scored 69 points. And they said, what was that like playing with Michael Jordan tonight? He scored 69 points. And he said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. He only scored one point. But he liked, he, okay, so the idea is he's obviously joking. But this is what we do a lot of the times as Christians. You know what? Me and God, we really combine to, to make me right. You know, if I get a little bit of God's grace and I, all the work I do, all the Bible studies I do, all the, we, really, we really put it together. And it's like, no, you don't. You put your faith in Jesus and he does all 70 points, okay? And there is nothing that we should be able to boast about. We only learn not to boast in our achievements when we realize that none of us and none of our achievements will save us. I think we can all think of times in our lives where you've met that person who takes a little too much credit for all the good stuff going on. And you kind of just want to say, don't you realize that that's not because you're so great? Catherine and I 
are so blessed that we don't have a, a lot of debt. That's not because I earned it. It's because our parents paid for our colleges. And if somebody's parents didn't and they're having a worse life and I say, well, if they just got their act together like Catherine and I, are you kidding me? No, I didn't do that to deserve that. My parents did that for me. Does that make sense? It's the same with Jesus Christ. It's the same with God. The second you find yourself thinking, the reason my life is so good is because I've done so much. The reason why things are going great is because I'm so great. You are boasting and you've missed the whole point of the gospel. Boasting is like a drowning man, a drowning man holding fistfuls of money and shouting, I'm okay, I've got money. I've got this. Don't worry, I'll be fine. No, don't hold on to your achievements. Don't hold on to any of that and think it's going to save you because it won't. And the second you realize it won't, the second you'll be someone who is without boasting. If you understand the gospel as righteousness received, not earned, you will never boast. Or rather, as Paul would say, you will never boast in yourself, but you will boast in Christ and him crucified. In Galatians 6, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul knew there's nothing he did to earn it, and all he could ever boast about is the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for him. So what did I say was the principle? God will judge humans for what they do. What's the problem? Is All of us are under sin. All of us, no matter how hard we work, could ever get to the place where we've done enough. And so the place that we stand, our proposition is, well, because of this sin, none of us can be make ourselves right with God by following the law. And then God comes in and he says this in Romans 3.21. We've already read it, but I'll read it again. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The Old Testament has been pointing towards this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Tim Keller says, All religion is people working hard all of their life to develop a righteousness of their own and then offering it before a God saying, Please accept me. Please accept what I've done. But now... The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is different than any other world religion, says that God has developed a perfect righteousness, and he offers it to each and every one of us. And by it, we are accepted. We are justified. We are made whole. We are made right. So that's my invitation to all of you. This is incredibly good news, everyone. I can't say enough about how good a news it is that you don't have to wonder if you've done enough to deserve your righteousness. I can already tell you, you haven't, and you never will. All you have to do is have enough faith to get on the plane, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and to say, I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation. He'll never let me down. If any of you would like to know more about that, I encourage you to come while we stand. And the elders will be at the doors in case you have anything to pray about.